Good afternoon. Uh, let me first of all take this opportunity to say how delighted I am to, to be able to be here today and to thank Professor Findlay and uh, the campus here at OSU and the Mershon Center History Department more generally for their generosity in, in having me and giving me the opportunity to uh, come here today and to talk to you about my work. Um, it's, yeah, I will start off with a, just a I don't know if I would call it a disclaimer or a caveat or just an observation, which is that, uh, uh, as most of you uh, probably know, uh, books take some time to uh, move from their initial sort of stages of research and thought to uh, becoming physical objects in the world. And uh, uh, so that, um, you know, I am now talking about something that's near and dear to my heart, but that actually... Um, I've, I, has been with me for some time and, and in some sense no longer is the, the, uh, the research topic that's most immediately uh, on my mind. But I, I welcome really the opportunity f now to have uh, conversations with people about it and to have feedback about this, this uh, uh, question or series of questions that, um, that have occupied my, my thinking for a number of years. So uh, thank you again for, for having me. Um, and let me uh, sort of make a few um, introductory remarks about this. Um, the development of national identity uh, in Turkey in the post-World War I period uh, and the policies established by the Ataturk regime and its successors uh, have, set, have set up a dichotomy between religion and nationalism in Turkey. That is, it's, it's generally understood or it's part of the common understanding um, that nationalism is associated with Ataturkism, that Ataturkism is a kind, um, is embedded in a kind of uh, secularism or laicism that people generally uh, construe as hostile uh, to religion, so that there's this kind of opposition uh, between the two uh, things. Uh, this hostility is then, to some extent, I think, backread uh, into the late Ottoman period, that is, a hostility that uh, is perceived as existing today between secularism and the Kemalist state on the one hand and religiosity on the other hand is read as uh, having been present as well uh, in, the, in the late Ottoman period. The policies uh, implemented in the early years of the republic, the closing of religious schools and shrines, the moving uh, of laws into purely state-run uh, non-religious courts, the codification of law, the abolition of the sultanate and the caliphate, the introduction of um, uh, brimmed hats and other modes of Western attire for men particularly, uh, were indeed uh, opposed by many people on religious grounds. Uh, and um, they were, you know, and, 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 they, and it's worth note, they were opposed by many people on religious grounds, and there was a sense that, that this was a, a, an expression of a desire um, to separate the new state and the, new, and the people in the new state from the Ottoman past and also from the Muslim uh, uh, background of the country to some extent. Um, and I think that that, you know, it's certainly the case that it was meant to, to uh, foster a break with the past. But it's also worth remembering that it was meant to um, not so much suppress religion as to take control of religion, uh, to, put, uh, religion to, to put the state in the driver's seat with respect to how religion was going to be interpreted. So, you know, it's not, for instance, that uh, you're closing the mosques, right? It's that you're asking uh, that prayer be conducted in Turkish, 
or that uh, um, uh, the Quran be translated and made available in Turkish. It is part of a, a process of um, trying to use religion, trying to bring religion into line with with a national identity. And it's also part of a, um, a process of trying to foster, I would argue, a more modernist interpretation of what people thought would be a more modernist interpretation of religion. Uh, in other words, uh, not per se, um, as is often, I think, construed uh, nowadays, that, that the attitude was religion is bad, let's stamp it out, but um, a, uh, an attitude that said, there are ways of interpreting and thinking about religion that um, um, are not in line with modernity, uh, are not in line with uh, progress. And so um, ways, the ways that we think about religion and interpret religious teaching have to be freed up uh, in order to... Um, uh, in order to sort of get Turkey into a stream of progress. And I, I will talk more later about this kind of uh, interest in the, in the notion that there was a, hist you know, a single historical stream uh, of world history uh, and that uh, it's progressing in a, in a single direction uh, and uh, the sense that many uh, late 19th century and early 20th century intellectuals had that somehow the Ottoman Empire or later Turkey had fallen, you know, fallen out of the stream you know, and uh, that they needed to get back into the, into the main uh, currents. Now, um, so, so I would say that, that to some extent these are policies then uh, that were uh, designed to, to, to create a break with the past, to emphasize difference between Turkish Muslims and non-Turkish Muslims, but they were uh, also um, there to foster a particular rationalist approach to Islam uh, and a rationalist approach to the world uh, and, and, and to constitute a kind of reinterpretation of, of religion. Secularism uh, or rationalism need not imply irreligion or atheism as uh, is sometimes uh, asserted. Um, and uh, I think another way to another way to think about this is, is to just go back to the old argument that even Galileo was making, right? That um, uh, the, the physical world is God's creation, and the scriptures are God's creation. Therefore, it is impossible that there should be any conflict between the two, right? They're both God's creation. And if there is then a conflict between them, if, if one imagines that the, if there's some kind of a conflict between empirical observation of the natural world and interpretation of scripture, that must mean that there's something wrong with the way you're interpreting the scripture. It can't mean that there's actually any conflict between the evidence of empirical observation and the revealed truths, right? That argument which was made uh, as long ago as Galileo defending himself against the Inquisition seems to me will become one of the staples of uh, reformers in the late 19th century who were interested in um, making Islam work with, making a, a, a kind of symbiosis between nationalism and Islam. And I think that they were much less interested than uh, perhaps now is claimed in uh, doing away with religion and much more interested in thinking about religion in these uh, modernist terms that, uh, and I want to argue then in this paper that the modernist terms in which they did think about religion um, made religion 
symbiotic with nationalism, not a handmaiden to nationalism. That is, I don't think the argument was that, um, um, you know, this is some kind of useful cultural cement that can be put into the service of religion, uh, sorry, of nationalism. I think the argument was that uh, a certain conception of religiosity and a certain conception of nationhood were part and parcel of the meaning of being modern and part and parcel of the meaning of being uh, in step with progress. Uh, so that is um, uh, sort of where I'm, I'm going to try and go today with this talk. Um, let me say that that kind of a, uh, um, a pro let me say that patriotism uh, and indeed even nationalism on the one hand uh, and, a mo and a kind of modernist approach uh, to uh, Islam were something that were uh, certainly present in 19th century Ottoman thinking, although today I'm going to focus not so much on um, the people from the Ottoman Empire but on a figure who comes from uh, the Caucasus. Uh, the, uh, you know, just to give some uh, a few quick examples, uh, certainly Nami Kemal is is a is an example of a person who is uh, trying to combine that that kind of progressivist uh, uh, and modernist approach to religion with a strong uh, um, patriotic uh, uh, agenda that 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 tries to unite the idea of representative institutions, uh, or at least um, limitations on the power of government, right, that a kind of different conception of what government is about um, with religion and uh, um, with a sense of authenticity as well, a sense of local authenticity and being tied to a particular time and a particular place. Um, Another a later figure uh, from the Ottoman Empire who is uh, engaged in this kind of thinking actually is um, Ahmed Hilmi of Plovdiv, uh, also a, a significant uh, figure in uh, late 19th century uh, intellectual life, uh, really a, a contemporary of Aulu's in the sense that he was contemporary of Ahmed Aulu, who I will talk about later, uh, who uh, in the sense that he was also uh, born in the 1860s, uh, so a real co-generational uh, uh, figure. Uh, another person who was very interested in this idea of um, not jettisoning, jettisoning religion, but of thinking about how religion could in fact be made to comport with modernity, and of thinking about how modernity connected to national identity as well. Um, most of these people were, in fact, engaged in attacks on the religious classes, which is a little bit different from being engaged in attacks on religion. Uh, they were very highly critical of uh, the uh, ulema. Uh, and uh, one of the arguments that they uh, quite often made, and again, this is something I want to come back to later in my talk, one of the arguments that they quite often made was that the ulema had assumed in the Muslim world the character of a closed intellectual class, uh, that, and not only an intellectual class, but a, cl a social class that had its own interests its own, and was self-perpetuating and was a closed group, and that it had assumed a kind of um, uh, position uh, and attitude in in this case, Ottoman society, that was similar to what the uh, Catholic priesthood had uh, assumed in Europe. 
uh, and they, in a sense, not in a sense, they quite sometimes overtly argued that um, Islam rightly understood was like Protestantism, that Islam rightly understood was a religion that emphasized the um, exercise of free, uh, of individual um, intellect and, and uh, individual um, uh, relationship to the, to the scriptures and to the deity, and it, that it was not a religion that was supposed to be mediated by uh, a group of uh, religious professionals. Um, that's a significant, uh, I want to sort of make a point about the fact that people did make that argument because, as, as I will uh, discuss later, um, it's, and I think it's probably well known to you all from European history, it's an argument that was often made about, that Europeans often made about uh, European history too, that, that the rise of Protestantism was connected to the rise of, of free, free thought and rationalism and the scientific revolution and that kind of thing. So there is a way that they are um, uh, connecting a certain kind of evolution of religion in the Middle East with, uh, 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 and, and connecting that to an idea of progress that is also related to a story that a good number of uh, uh, European and American intellectuals were, were uh, telling about uh, the rise of secularism, scientific revolution, constitutionalism, capitalism, and progress, so-called, in the West. Um, not, not an unrelated um, phenomenon. Just to um, uh, sort of finish up with my uh, examples here, um, I was talking earlier about Ahmed Hilmi, who, who's really considered to be primarily a defender of religion in the uh, late 19th century. And uh, let me tell you what he has to say about the professional religious classes. Um, he says, the opposition, to the, ulama, the opposition of the ulama to uh, change has completely exposed their mentality. With such a mentality, seeking any connection between them and reform and renewal is as useless as expecting progress from the causes of stagnation. Uh, therefore, it is unnecessary to accuse the ulama. They are simply incapable of analyzing and evaluating the present circumstances because they are unaware of the contemporary level of human knowledge and uh, the power and influence of the modern sciences. Uh, this thoughtlessness is so profound that these wretched people assume that the maintenance and perpetuation of opinion that was produced 800 or 1,000 years ago by their predecessors is more beneficial and useful for Islam than recourse to ideas uh, that could regenerate present-day Muslim society. Now, what I want to re-emphasize here is this is a quotation from a person who uh, was a self-described defender of Islam against as over against uh, westernizers or indeed even nationalists in that period. Um, and uh, um, so y you can see that uh, this idea of, um, you know, a, a, a quote-unquote conservative Islamic movement on the one hand and a progressivist nationalist movement on the other hand isn't quite, um, it doesn't break out quite that neatly. Uh, there, there's a way that, that people really uh, think of um, Islamic reform as part of a national project. Uh, and I also want to uh, say uh, briefly here before I go on that um, I was not particularly aware of, of, of uh, Ahmed Hilmi. I had the opportunity recently to read an article about him which brought uh, some of this information to my attention. And unfortunately, I've 
left the citation out, so I can't tell you who wrote it, but um, I, uh, you know, just truth in advertising. That's a, a piece of information I got from somebody else. Um, okay, now in, in this talk, uh, I would uh, like to give special attention to a person that I've worked on uh, uh, in, the, in the past, uh, a man named uh, Ahmed Aoulou. Um, and I want to uh, focus on his career and intellectual development, in part because although he is a significant figure, uh, he has been less well studied uh, than other uh, figures in the um, Turkish nationalist movement. Certainly uh, uh, other people have been, um, Ziega Kalp, for example, has been studied, you know, um, to the point of no return, I would say. And... Um, Yusuf Atura, to some extent, is a better-known figure, or has been up until now, a better-known figure than Ahmed Aoulou. So in part, I, I, I guess I'm saying he's, I think he's an interesting and significant figure who is somewhat less well-known. Um, and I also want to focus on uh, Aoulou because since he never spent any substantial time in the Ottoman Empire prior to 1909, his identity options, uh, his choice of, you know, how he's going to think about himself, um, seem to have been more open-ended than those of uh, some other figures in the period. I propose to examine his intellectual trajectory from two perspectives. First, I wish to discuss the process by which he construed an identity for himself. And this will point up the extent to which identity formation was, in his case, a means of, of availing himself of tools for the strengthening of his community. In essence, he came to view uh, modernity and progress as intimately tied up with a particular uh, conception of national identity. I also want to show, I also wish to show how religion uh, was a, a fundamental and symbiotic part of his understanding of what national identity was. Uh, secondly, I hope to show that the specific circumstances of Muslims under Russian rule predisposed them to assimilate a, a specifically ethno-national interpretation of modern society and of the state, and that significantly these conditions were uh, relatively lacking for Muslim Turks in the Ottoman Empire, uh, thus explaining, uh, I hope, the preeminent role played by immigrants from the Russian Empire in the development of a specifically Turkish ideology. So a little bit about the family background here. Uh, Ahmed Aoulou was born in the uh, Caucasian city of Shusha in the Karabakh region of Russian-ruled Azerbaijan in uh, 1869. He hailed from a family of landowning Shia Beys, whose noble status had been confirmed by the Russian administration at the time that the region was brought under Russian rule. Aoulou later described his father and uncle as living untroubled lives that centered around hunting, hawking, religious disputation, and the recitation of classical poetry. <laughs> However, the radical changes uh, Russian Azerbaijan was undergoing in the last quarter of the 19th century would make it impossible for young men of Aulu's generation to lead the undisturbed traditional lives of their fathers. Uh, the oil boom in Baku uh, after 1872 improved, it's 1872 because the Russian government changes the way oil leasing is done in that year and that leads to an explosion of oil development in the region. So the boom in Baku uh, after 1872 improved communications and flooded the region with immigrant workers and foreign investors, 
making Muslims a minority in many urban areas, while the majority of the new industries were owned and operated by Russians, Europeans, and some Armenians. And that's not to say that there wasn't an important uh, Muslim bourgeoisie in Baku, because there was, and there were people there who did get rich off the oil industry. But in terms of their relative numbers, they are a minority by comparison with these various uh, basically Christian groups, some of them indigenous and some of them foreign. Uh, Russian administration in the region in this period expanded, and yet government posts tended to be reserved for Christians. When at last some of the great reforms uh, uh, were applied to the, this is following the Crimean War, right, the great reforms, uh, were applied in the Caucasus, those reforms uh, uh, were directed at eliminating the last of the traditional Muslim courts something that took place in 1866, and of creating municipal dumas or elective councils for the municipalities in which the the number of seats open to Muslims was severely restricted. Uh, That took place in uh, 1874. For the local Muslim elites, the possibility of wielding significant influence in the community through the exercise of traditional roles was thus greatly diminished. Uh, in order to compete in the new environment, it would be necessary for somebody like Aolu to obtain a Russian style of education or training or a Western style of education or training and to enter the new uh, uh, socioeconomic order, basically. This reality is reflected in Aolu's decision to pursue a university education in Paris. Uh, He arrived in that city in 1889 uh, with a sense that his personal position and that of and the position of his general uh, and the position of his community more generally was being eroded, um, he arrived in Paris also with what one may call an imperial identity, one that included primarily religious, cultural, and familial associations in the context of a multi-ethnic state. Uh, and generally, in this period, he referred to himself as a Rus Musliman, a Russian Muslim. Uh, he was familiar with the writings of uh, the Enlightenment and also uh, actually of uh, uh, Russian um, idealism, uh, Russian anarchism as well, uh, through his studies in Russia. Uh, but he was about to encounter something new in France's Third Republic, I mean, something new to him in France's Third Republic, and that was an emphasis on the nation and on a national spirit Uh, linked to national historical roots and joined in a state uh, as the engine and prerequisite for all real advancement and progress. Uh, As I have argued in detail in another place, turn-of-the-century France was characterized by what is sometimes termed an anti-rationalist reaction, the universalizing enlightenment model of man with the big M, um, Uh, had come under criticism as insufficiently empirical. Uh, And it was replaced in the developing new social sciences by a model that, in fact, attempted to account for difference. Um, And I want to pause here and say in parentheses, this is also a moment of huge um, resurgence of religious sentiment in France, right? This is a moment of great religious rebirth uh, uh, in in French society. In any case, uh, in this uh, last period of the 19th century, theorists like Gustave Le Bon 
and Ernst Renan examined collective and thus unconscious and historically conditioned features, such as language and religious sensibility. Frequently, when such thinkers accounted for the supposed superiority of their own culture or of their own class, they did so by formulating evolutionary theories whereby an enlightened superstructure was seen as developing on top of uh, an unconscious substructure or foundation. The civilized superstructure could only grow out of the substructure, but, and so, of course, civilization was not transferable. And I think that's an important point in the, in the thinking of a lot of these men. Uh, uh, you know, it's very, one is, the separation between civilization and culture now is sort of a commonplace, uh, intellectual commonplace. But uh, when these people were beginning to make that kind of a distinction, they were making it uh, on the idea that, yes, civilization is something different from culture, but those two things can't be separated from each other. Real civil, quote unquote, real civilization, durable civilization, only grows up on top of an authentic substructure, and that authentic substructure is, is cultural in nature and specific not universalizing. Um, that is, in their view, um, progress could not be separated from roots. Uh, and these roots uh, were understood in um, national terms or in ethnic terms, but they were also understood in religious terms. Um, though such thinkers often specifically classify Middle Eastern and Islamic societies as possessing a genius or essential character. By genius, you know what I mean by genius, that, that sort of uh, uh, in, in, intangible uh, individual characteristic or, or nature that each uh, nation was supposed to have. Um, so though these thinkers often specifically classified Middle Eastern and Islamic societies as possessing a genius or essential character that did not allow for attaining the highest levels of civilization, it was always possible for somebody like Ahmed Aoulou to absorb the overall model without accepting the assessment of their culture's particular genius. Uh, I will, I'm going to spend some time talking about the ideas of Ernst Renan because they were quite important for Aoulou. He was his student, that is, Aoulou studied with Renan at uh, the École Pratique des Hautes Études at the Collège de France uh, while he was a student. But more generally, uh, uh, Renan's ideas were very influential in the Middle East broadly. Uh, and it's worth noting that um, in the 1880s, Renan gave a speech at the Sorbonne called Islam and Science in which he uh, made the argument, basically, that um, uh, uh, the nature of Islam was such as to prevent rational thought. And therefore, Muslims would never attain to science. And this was broadly read, this essay was broadly read throughout the Middle East and provoked uh, at least three major written refutations, uh, one by Nami Kemal in the Ottoman Empire, another by a leading ulama figure uh, from, uh, the, from Russia, from the Russian Empire, uh, and as well from Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, uh, the, the uh, Persian intellectual. So, so Renan is interesting to us here not only because of his specific connection to Aulu as his student, but also because more broadly he framed a set of ideas and arguments that were well known in the Middle East and that Middle Eastern intellectuals felt compelled to respond to. Now, uh, Renan gave shape uh, to the general ideas that I have just gotten done outlining in ways that are especially interesting for the purposes of this discussion. Um, 
And furthermore, his thought makes a particularly useful example here because uh, as a man who made his career in the study of Semitic languages and the history of Judeo-Christian religion, he often wrote and spoke about the history and nature of Middle Eastern peoples and of uh, the monotheistic religions. Now, Renan asserted that becoming, the process of becoming, or progress, is an eternal process involving the movement of the human spirit towards ever higher levels of consciousness. He theorized the existence of three stages of man, a syncretic state. I mean, you know, this all sounds very sort of, uh, what word can I use, bogus to us today. But, uh, uh, you know, this was taken quite seriously in its moment. Um, he theorized the existence of three stages of man, a syncretic stage of spontaneous creativity, an analytic stage in which intuitive knowledge is replaced by rational knowledge, and then a synthetic stage where analysis is reunited with creativity. So it's as if you have you know, baby creativity, and then you have adolescent uh, analysis, and then you have this adult synthesis that uh, connects uh, your uh, creative impulses with your sort of superego, I guess. Um, uh, man in his primitive and syncretic moment is defined by, according to Renan, by two spontaneous human creations, language and religion. Uh, these creations are spontaneous in the sense that they emerge with man and are fully formed. They're not developed, they don't develop, they just happen. Uh, they are not acquired through a gradual evolutionary process, though they are, of course, subject to historical change. Uh, these creations are also universal in the sense that they appear in all human societies, but although they are universal, they are not of common origin. Thus, the groups uh, they define are essentially different. Uh, these differences will determine each group's capacity for development and progress, and only a very few among all the uh, groups in the world will have the characteristics necessary to progress into Renan's second level of development, the analytical de level of development. But how, according to Renan, does a culture proceed to the second level? What are the mechanisms of you know, moving from one level to the next? Now, the answer of, to this, according to uh, Renan, is through various stages of religious experience. First, local religion raises the human consciousness above the level of the tribal. Then, the development of a religious dogma that asserts universal morals raises consciousness again. So he's sort of arguing that first you have local religions, and he would, I think, put most classical religions, let's say uh, Greco-Roman religion, in that kind of uh, uh, category. And then the next level of development is when a religion develops some kind of universalist claim, and essentially what he means by that is monotheism. Uh, and finally, uh, the resistance of uh, individuals and of regional states to the preemptive claims of a universalizing theocratic administration brings about freedom of conscience, the secular state, and the development of rationality and critical thought. And I think you, if you're looking at European history, you can read here that what Renan means by that is Protestantism. And it's interesting, you know, because he studied for the priesthood, Renan did, uh, before he uh, went on to become a professor of uh, Semitic languages, actually. Um, in Renan's view, 
only the so-called Indo-European cultures uh, had been fully successful in making this final transition uh, uh, to the uh, synthetic moment. Now, Renan played a significant role in transforming the philological categories of Indo-European and Semitic languages uh, into a theory of national characters. And he argued that while Semitic culture was important because it had produced monotheism, the raw material necessary to allow Indo-Europeans to elaborate a larger morality and move beyond purely local and syncretic religion, still, uh, according to him, Semitic culture was dogmatic in nature and could never move beyond a stifling theocratic conception of the world and of political organization. Uh, he, I, I, well, this is only a paraphrase, unfortunately, but he has some uh, line in one of his essays about the, um, you know, the relentless wasteland uh, that is produced by uh, the statement that God is God. That um, that's, uh, you know, that that's uh, 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 such an absolute statement and, and lacks, you know, all this bubbling of variety and creativity that he's interested in. Um, finally, not only is it the case in Renan's theories that not all group that not all groups uh, will succeed in making the transition to a higher, more rationally organized society, but within those that do, only a small minority of individuals will actually achieve an elevated consciousness. So, society as a whole, societies as a whole, uh, uh, develop differentially. And within that, and then within individual societies, you know, the elites uh, achieve one level of consciousness. And of course, those ordinary, unwashed people, you know, what can you expect? It's that kind of an attitude. Um, uh, the mass of the people, according to him, will serve the elite and free them up to achieve this higher level of accomplishment. It's, you know, because, uh, as we all know, France is the home of, um, you know, enlightenment ideas about human equality. Um, now, while he was pursuing his studies at the École Pratique des Attitudes, Ahmed Aoulou published a series of articles in a French journal. And these articles uh, constitute a very overt adaptation of this Renanian model of national character and progress. The most striking aspect of these early articles is simply that the author considers himself a Persian writing in his native culture. Since he later became a noted uh, Turkist or Turkish nationalist, this identification strikes uh, many people, at least at first, as surprising. In fact, however, in confronting the question of his nationality for the first time, it was easy for Aulu to focus on Persian culture, the spiritual home of the religion, which had always uh, been one of his identifying affiliations. Uh, Persia had lately been the object of much, much positive attention in European intellectual circles uh, because it was felt that uh, since the Persian language was an European, uh, Indo-European language, that this meant that the Persians were an Indo-European or Aryan nation. And this is what I mean about transferring of philological categories to ethnic categories, that sort of transformation. Figures uh, such as Renan or Gobineau and Aoulou's own university supervisor, James Darmstetter, had likened Persia's cultural achievements to those of classical Greece. Uh, given these factors, it is not at all surprising that Aulu chose a national identity for himself uh, that was also Aryan. Uh, 
because, you know, he's, in, he's being educated in an environment where people are putting a great deal of emphasis on the ability of Aryans to be modern as opposed to other people, right? Uh, he took his communal identity, his communal or religious identity as a Shiite and transformed it into both a national Persian identity and into an Aryan identity, and in so doing constructed a vision of his own society as one that was capable of modernity, modernity and progress on the terms that he had learned from his uh, uh, French uh, mentors. Now it's worth examining exactly how he does this. He began by asserting that Shiism uh, is the national religion of the Persians. And by this he means not simply that most Iranians are Shiites and that Twelver Shiism is largely confined to the Iranian context, but moreover that it is a man he means by it that Shiism is a manifestation of old pre-Islamic Persian identity and values. He claims Shiism as an expression of Persian national identity uh, in that the Shia beliefs about the nature of the imams and the mujtahids are, in his view, uh, survivals of Zoroastrianism uh, regarding the divine nature of the monarch, and that the mujtahids and the imams are essentially the reemergence of this idea under cover of Islam. Uh, this set of assertions is detailed most clearly in articles he wrote in 1892 uh, for the Ninth International Congress of Orientalists in London. Uh, in his interpretation, that is in Aulu's interpretation, the imams and the mujtahids bridge the gap that exists for Sunni Muslims between God and man. Uh, this for him is the essence of Shiism and it is, as he says, born of the Zoroastrian belief in man's participation in the divine nature. Uh, now, let me just Actually, since that's a quote, I should finish it. Uh, Born of the Zoroastrian belief in man's participation in the divine nature, a belief, as he says, so contrary to the spirit of orthodox Islam. And I want to pause there and say um, it's worth, it's it's interesting noticing that he's talking here about this this, uh, uh, man's participation in the divine nature because that is related to a a sort of larger, um, if you will, Sufi. tenant about the unity of existence, the theory of the unity of existence. Um, and it's a position that often uh, uh, religious modernists in this period, I mean, that particular bit of theology uh, or uh, religious thinking is, is um, a tenant that many uh, Islamic modernists uh, sort of hew to. Uh, and I think they hew to it in part for the reasons that I was trying to um, indicate a little bit at the beginning of this talk when I was talking about the, the, the Galileo example. It's the argument that God is present in all existence, in everything that exists in, in the physical universe. And therefore, what one can observe in the physical universe is, uh, cannot be contrary to revelation because it's part of God. Uh, and it is a way, uh, I think if I were looking for an overarching, you know, trying to point out the big themes here, I would guess I would say that one of the things that, that's, that's present in all of this uh, kind of thinking is that people are very interested in empiricism. They're very interested in the idea of operating off of observation of what's happening in the real world and of doing things in a kind of uh, inductive way as opposed to a deductive way and of adapting institutions and ideas to existing circumstances, not the opposite. That is, not starting out with a grand theory and adapting uh, uh, the world to the theory. 
Um, and this uh, s sort of approach to, to religion of talking about the, the uh, uh, unity of existence and the, the unity of the divine with the material is a backdoor into, into that. It's a backdoor into making um, religion, uh, religious thought, um, not, in, uh, uh, not in conflict with a, uh, an inductive approach to structuring reality, uh, and therefore not in conflict with uh, rationalist approaches. Okay, but to go back to wherever it was that I was, um, by making this kind of argument about Shiism as a kind of uh, perdurance of uh, uh, Zoroastrianism, Aulu not only insists upon the pre upon the persistence of pre-Islamic Persian beliefs in the, in the Shia belief system, thus constructing Shiism as a receptacle of Persian national identity, but he also emphasizes the distinctness of those beliefs from Sunni Islam, which he construes as principally Arab and therefore Semitic in nature. So you can see he's sort of picking up on this um, Indo-European uh, Semitic thing that, that was very present in Renan's thinking. Um, however, Aulu places great weight on the Mojtahids, not only because they are a genuinely Persian institution, but also because they constitute an independent uh, intellectual elite. And in Aulu's eyes, the Mojtahids are a disinterested meritocracy whose organization gives them complete liberty from official pressure or financial constraints. And this may seem to you to be sort of contradictory to what I started out talking about, but what I want to point out here is that there's this sense that the Sunni uh, um, uh, ulama are on the payroll of the Ottoman government, you know, uh, uh, in a way that the Mojtahids were not. The Mojtahid had, had independent sources of income. So this is actually, um, the, I think, the first sort of inkling of, of that kind of um, uh, Islam as a version of Protestantism uh, argument. Um, and it allows uh, uh, a kind of linkage, uh, or it allows uh, thinkers to combine two things. On the one hand, the idea that, that free thought and independence from a uh, professional clerical class is important, but on the other hand, a kind of uh, per prevailing sense that uh, the population needs, um, if you will, a revolutionary vanguard. You know, there's a sort of failure to trust uh, the, the, the larger populace to do the right thing without the proper kind of guidance. So somehow you have to combine the idea of um, constraining the professional religious classes uh, with, however, a desire to um, provide uh, appropriate guidance. And um, that tension is, is present in Aulu's thinking throughout his career, and actually I think it's present in, in the thinking of most of these uh, modernists uh, uh, in the period. In short, then, through an elaborately constructed series of arguments, Aulu uh, forged a useful national identity for himself. Uh, his, his Parisian productions thus reveal a young man who has been deeply influenced by the teaching and theories of his French minstors uh, and who was also profoundly uh, uh, disturbed by the relative weakness of his world vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Europe. Uh, and combining these elements, he constructs for himself and for his community uh, an identity that, you know, was that 
in theory, at least, would be an effective identity, one that you know, was, uh, could effectively engage in combat, in a sense, and that could effectively make a transition back into the mainstream of progress, which is how he imagined it. Um, now, in later works, uh, uh, Aulu seems to have radically altered his point of view, identifying himself as a Turk and adopting a Turkish perspective, so suddenly jettisoning this whole, you know, uh, uh, Persian aspect. There are probably several reasons uh, that can account for this. First, a growing interest in teaching modern subjects in popular, uh, first, a growing interest in the teaching of modern subjects in uh, popular schools encouraged the use of uh, the popular language as opposed to the literary language. And in Azerbaijan, the popular language is Azeri, although Persian was the literary language. Second, a desire to minimize Sunni-Shi sectarian strife made an insistence on Persian identification inflammatory. And finally, the hopeful moment of the tobacco pro uh, protest in Iran, which was when he wrote that article about uh, Zoroastrianism and Shiism, uh, that hopeful moment had passed. Uh, and the Ottoman Empire uh, now looked far more powerful and more promising uh, and more reform-minded uh, than Iran. In any case, despite the change in label, Aulu uh, retains much of the framework developed in the French articles. Essentially, he jettisons the elements of his argument that relate to the special role of Shiism and the, and the supposed characteristics of Aryans and Semites. But on the other hand, he retains the basic concept of religion as an integral part of the creation of a national identity. It is a civilizing element that teaches morality and devotion to larger causes, and at the same time, it can be a potential impediment to free thought and individual development if it's interpreted wrongly. That is, Aulu continues to posit religion as both necessary and dangerous to modernity and to progress. Religion must be kept as a purveyor of cultural unity, for sure, but also as a, as a source of moral truths. Uh, but it must be, at the same time, strictly understood within a historical framework, a historical framework that is adapted to its human environment. Um, and what, the thing that keeps getting re-emphasized in, in, in the context of this kind of writing is that uh, one should not be uh, blindly connected to tradition, that uh, uh, there's a difference between, you know, the rev God's revealed truth and the way things have done, the way things have always been done. That those aren't the same thing, and that certain kinds of traditional interpretations of religiosity and worship are not necessarily the correct ones, or they may have been correct at a certain time, but they're not correct today. That kind of a thing. Um, among the numerous writings uh, addressed to his fellow uh, uh, Turkish nationalists. Uh, uh, which Aulu published in the pages of um, a journal called Turk Yurdu, there are two substantial efforts uh, that illustrate these points especially well, I think. Uh, one appeared in 1912 and is entitled, it was a series of articles entitled The Turkish World. In this series, uh, Aulu lays out his vision of the Turkish world uh, uh, and what he sees as the causes of its weakness and the proper steps to take in effecting its renewal. The second article I want to discuss is uh, entitled The Nationalist Question or the Nationalist Conflict in Islam. 
this was published in 1914, and forms part of a debate that, Aho- that Aulu was carrying out with a man named Ahmed Naim about whether or not Islam and Turkism uh, were compatible, or to put it another way, whether or not Islam was compatible with uh, nationalism or whether nationalism as an idea was contrary to the tenets of Islam. Uh, in the Turkish World Series, Aulu finds the condition of the Turkish world to be less than satisfactory and attributes this primarily to two factors. One, an absence of national consciousness and a tendency towards assimilation on the part of the Turks. Um, The Turks, according to Aulu, have always conquered peoples more culturally advanced than than themselves, and as a result, they have been assimilated to those people. Uh, Turkish intellectuals and men of letters who might have been expected to hinder this process have, in fact, promoted this process of assimilation, generally preferring to write in Persian and Arabic than in Turkish. And in such circumstances, it is virtually impossible that a national consciousness could develop. What Aulu has done with such arguments is assert the crucial importance of national consciousness for progress, highlighting the role of intellectual elites in creating it Um, and blaming the Turks' lack of national consciousness on their assimilation to other national cultures, right? So our problem is that only people with a national culture are part of the stream of progress. Um, Although we have been a dominating force in history, when we conquer other people, instead of having them become like us, we become like them. We assimilate to them. And that is the origin of our uh, uh, failure to progress. That's the crux of that argument that's being made there. Now, this last, that that little piece of reasoning is a neat trick, I think, because in response to critiques leveled by Ahmed Naim and other religious thinkers of the period that nationalism was a danger to the unity of the Islamic ummah or the Islamic community, Aulu countered that the Ummah, in the sense that they imagine it, doesn't exist. Uh, he tars that notion with the brush of abstraction. And I, here I go back to this thing of, of do you want to operate from an inductive model or a deductive model, right? And he's basically accusing these Islamic scholars of, or you know, piety-minded scholars of working from a deductive model. There should be a unified community of Muslims, therefore there is one, right? And he says, you know, and Aulu says, on the other hand, that's an abstraction. In fact, there's no such thing. There's no effective community of uh, Muslims out there today. Um, He tars this notion, then, with the brush of abstraction and contrasts it to his own notion of empirical national realities. In fact, he says, there is no ummah, but there are a variety of Islamic peoples out there, of Muslim peoples out there in the world. Uh, And he his rejection of the supposed unity of the ummah as an argument against nationalism is much more than a transparent attempt to reassure good Muslims that they can back nationalism. So, um, you know, you might think, okay, he's saying, well, there is no real ummah out there, and so being a nationalist is okay, and that it's just a, a, a way of harmonizing those two things. But there's actually something deeper at work that he's trying to get at. What he's trying to assert is that those who put forward the claims of the Ummah against the claims of the nation are actually encouraging one nation to subsume itself to another. In other words, he's arguing that there is no overarching Islamic identity. There are are national identities that are, and those people are also sometimes Muslims. 
So if you insist upon this idea of unity of all Muslims, what you're actually doing is you're telling Turks, for example, to become Persians or to become Arabs. That's, that's what he's saying, okay? That, so what you're actually doing is encouraging one nation to subsume itself to another, and in so doing, you're encouraging, a bl- first of all, a blind attachment to past usages, uh, uh, as though the usages of the past were the same thing as revelation, uh, and you're also derailing people from the stream of progress because he feels quite convinced that national identity is uh, sort of the shape of things to come, the, 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 the window on the future, if you will. Um, thus, according to Albu, such thinkers, by misunderstanding the true nature of religion and the true nature of the nation, and the misunderstanding the relationship in which these two things stand to each other are bringing about the stagnation and decline not only of individual nations, but of the very Muslim world that they claim to serve. Uh, And in consequence, they're bringing about the stagnation of the Turkish world specifically. In effect, Aulu is here also equating the loss of national identity with backwardness and obscurantism and a failure to move forward. Let me um, take a moment here to talk about uh, why he's so interested in nationalism as as being part of uh, 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 national identity as being a part of progress. Um, This really has to do, I mean, I think in the the post-World War II world in general, and maybe more specifically in the post-Yugoslavian world, uh, we have a, 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 you know, way of thinking about nationalism that really equates it with the, with, uh, the worst sort of outrages of exclusionism and of you know, saying, Here, we are one group, you're a different group, and uh, we can't live together, uh, um, and, and focusing really on a, a kind of racialist and culturalist exclusionism as, as um, being identified with nationalism. But there, there is a liberal uh, background to nationalism that you know, I think is a, such a well-known history that in a sense it tends to get forgotten. Um, and that is the, the, the part, that's the part of nationalism that says people ought to have sovereignty, that sovereignty, you know, uh, belongs, uh, resides in the people, uh, not in uh, divine right. Uh, and that, um, in or- but, but that if you're going to have uh, as sovereign people out there, they have to have some set of shared values so that they can have useful political discussions and arrive at uh, 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 and have a sort of useful uh, political process. Um, That is, I think, the thing that is one of the important things that is driving um, late 19th century nationalists uh, in the Ottoman Empire that quite concerned with the idea of constitutionalism. They're quite concerned with the idea of popular sovereignty as opposed to uh, uh, monarchy. And uh, they, see those in, they see the growth of those kinds of political institutions as also connected to the growth of um, capitalism, actually, uh, and to the growth of um, um, sort of uh, uh, bourgeois societies. Um, and so when they talk about intellectual progress, scientific progress, political progress, and so, so forth, they do really see that as connected to uh, the emergence of um, this kind of um, political, constitutional, 
and uh, elective or representative political institutions. And they see that because of the moment that they're living in, right, because it's, it, because it's 1910, not 1810, they do see that as connected to uh, national identity. So uh, that being national is in, in, in profoundly equated in their minds with being, um, you know, with, with the development of, of a burgeoning uh, uh, capitalist economy, with the creation of middle classes, with, with um, representative political institutions and that kind of thing, and with um, the scientific revolution. Okay. Now, uh, I'm going to have to wind up here soon in a minute, and of course I always uh, have trouble uh, timing these things just right. Um, let me think about what I want to do. Yeah, okay. And I'll just continue a little bit here uh, uh, for my last couple minutes with um, sort of further elaborating how uh, he thinks about the relationship between the nation uh, and uh, religion um, and um, try to reemphasize the, the way that I think Aulu and many others like him saw those two things as, as symbiotic and not as in opposition to one another. Uh, if we look at Aulu's discussion uh, of early Islam, uh, we can get an idea of the reciprocal relationship he envisioned between religion and national identity. Uh, in 1914, uh, in response to Ahmed Naim's assertion that the sacred texts and traditions uh, condemn nationalism, Aulu notes that Ahmed Naim erroneously, he claims, uh, Aulu claims that Ahmed Naim uh, erroneously uses the term asabiyet, which Aulu would translate as tribalism, to stand for kavmiat, which is the term that Aulu would use to discuss nationalism. Um, and from here, so he's saying, you know, Ahmed Naim says that uh, asabiyat is, is contrary to Islam, but I, Ahmed Aulu, am not talking about asabiyat, I'm talking about kavmiat. Uh, and then he goes on to explain why he thinks that's important. Uh, he, he launches into an interpretation of the early history of Islam, Aulu does, claiming that the prophet worked tirelessly to overcome what? To overcome Asabiyat uh, among the Arabs because he knew that the natural strengths and genius of the Arabs, so necessary to carry Islam out into the larger world, could only be realized through the forging of an Arab national unity. So Arabness having to overcome the uh, 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 tribal identity within the Arab-speaking world. And he gives credit for that overcoming of tribal identity among the Arabs to the coming of Islam, right? Uh, the prophet then, according to Aulu, used the bonds of an Islamic consciousness in order to overcome tribalism among the Arabs and to give birth to Arab unity. And it's by this type of argument that Aulu presents nationalism and Islam in a kind of symbiotic relationship where religion is needed to rise above particularism, but where national unity was necessary to create a vessel that was worthy and capable of transmitting the revealed truths of Islam to the rest of the world. Now, <clears throat> in these Articles, Aulu is always careful to distinguish between religious truths or revelation on the one hand and religion on the other hand. <laughs> revelation is an abstraction, uh, eternal and immutable. 
religion exists in the world and as such is the result of a complex and dynamic interaction between revelation and context. It is erroneous and dangerous then from his point of view to identify past religious practice with revealed truth. So you're again getting at that uh, thing of uh, you have to interpret um, uh, you have to re- interpret religion in the context of, a, of an empirical reality. Ahmed Aulu's formulations across two decades then, from the 1890s to the 1910s, uh, present a compelling illustration both of the power of the new model of the nation uh, 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 prevalent in late 19th century France and of the determination and intellectual resourcefulness of the Middle Eastern reformers and modernizers who encountered those uh, ideas. Uh, The beauty, in fact, of the new emphasis on difference and cultural authenticity that was present in those late 19th century European ideas was precisely that it suggested ways for publicist reformers like Aulu to cast the modernization of their societies in terms that made the preservation of historical, linguistic, and religious identity intrinsic to progress. It was an approach that linked the formation of rational liberal society with its representative institutions and technological achievements to the maintenance of roots and as such, it resolved the basic conundrum facing Middle Eastern reformers of that period, which was how to modernize without westernizing, that is, uh, without losing the very cultural specificity that they were mobilizing to defend. Um, The concrete characteristics of nationalist ideology so conceived made nationalism a natural choice for those pursuing self-strengthening. And um, I will wrap it up there because I'm out of time, but I just want to say that in particular, immigrants from the Russian Empire were freer to engage in this kind of uh, specifically nationalist approach. Maybe freer, uh, more inclined, let me put it that way, to engage in this kind of specifically nationalist approach. Everybody, not everybody, but very many people in the period, regardless of whether they were Caucasians or um, uh, Ottomans, were interested in modernization and in reform. Uh, But the specifically sort of nationalist um, uh, line of thinking that came out of uh, immigrants from the Caucasus, and Aulu is one example, but Ali Hussein Zadeh Tehran or Yusuf Akhtur or Mehmed Amin Rusul Zadeh are other examples. So he's one of quite a large group of people. it has, I think, really to do with the fact that um, I would say two things. On the one hand, um, while they certainly did care about the success and um, uh, continued existence of the Ottoman Empire because it was a powerful Muslim state and, one, and really the only powerful, fully independent Muslim state uh, in the world at that time, um, They had less of a personal commitment, if you will, to its particular geography. Uh, You know, when if 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 Salonika falls and becomes part of Greece, or Plovdiv becomes part of Bulgaria, you know, it's not um, it's not their hometown that that, that's uh, uh, being cut off. Uh, So there's a way to think about uh, the 
working for the survival of the Ottoman Empire without having to be as emotionally committed to, to specific aspects of its geography. I think that's one thing. And, but the second thing, and, and the more important thing, is really that these people were living um, under occupation. They were experiencing colonization uh, uh, directly, not indirectly. This was not indirect economic colonization or external pressure or any of that kind. This was, you know, this is what it is to have foreign people come in and, and uh, sit on your land and uh, reorganize you know, all of the social and political institutions uh, uh, in the territory. And um, they, I think, therefore had a very specific and um, um, realistic sense of the degree to which a um, national identity mattered. They knew how it mattered to them <laughs> in relation to the Russians, and I think that meant that they had a sense of how it mattered to various minorities in the Ottoman Empire in relationship to the Ottomans. Uh, and so, again, from a sort of empirical and, and, and uh, pragmatic sense, point of view, they had a sense that, you know, the Ottomanist ideal of um, uh, we'll all be citizens together in a multi-ethnic, multicultural Ottoman Empire, um, I think they had a sense that the moment for that had passed, um, uh, that, the, um, the, that the national awakening of the various minority groups, or they weren't, I don't even want to use that term, but the national awakening of the various different groups uh, in the Ottoman Empire had, had reached uh, such a point that uh, it was unlikely that those people would, would be um, drawn back into uh, a kind of civic-minded Ottoman uh, constitutional monarchy. Um, and in fact, Yusuf Aktura at the turn of the century is quite explicit about saying that in his um, famous essay, Three uh, Policies. He just says, you know, um, we need to be thinking nationally uh, as Turks because um, the Islamic unity is a dream and one that the great imperial powers will oppose with all their might in any case. And um, on the other hand, uh, uh, Ottomanism is not compelling to uh, very many of the populations uh, living within the Ottoman Empire at this time. Now he's saying that, I think it's 1902, Right? Maybe these things were more, it's not to say that this wasn't a feasible idea in 1830, right? or even 40 or 50, but uh, 1902, I think you're, you're in different territory. I'll stop there. I believe our speaker would be willing to entertain some questions, and so I'll uh, let her recognize people uh, as they raise their hands. Let me take a minute to say thank you all for bearing with me. It's hard sometimes to prevent, present rather intricate <laughs> sets of arguments in an oral format. I hope it wasn't too um, uh, wearing for you. Um, so I appreciate your patience. Yes, sir. I'm not sure how interrelated these are, my knowledge, but you're talking about that, nas that uh, Islamic nas uh the whole Islamic community, the Ummah, kind of passing its time, uh, is what you're kind of closing with. Where did the pan-Arab uh, movement come from then? Or is that even similar to it um, after World War II? Is that related in any way to this? I mean, um, so two things. I wasn't 
I wasn't saying that the that the Ummah had passed its time. I was saying that um, uh, that Yusuf in an article he wrote at the turn of the century, uh, and he, that was in the first couple of years of the 20th century. I, I believe it's 1902, but I would have to check. Um, make, you know, simply says that um, in objective reality, the Muslim community was not united. It was not united in a theological sense, and it was not united in a political sense. Uh, and therefore, people who were basing their hopes on more effective resistance to colonialism, on the idea of uh, the unity of the Ummah, and the Ummah is united to repel the colonial aggressor, were, uh, you know, pinning their hopes for a rather frittle straw. Uh, I think that's what he had to say about that. Um, as far as pan-Arabism, pan-Arabism, you know, what, in the, I guess, in, in sort of broad, very broad sweeping terms, but, um, I forgot. Uh, the, the Coming apart of the Ottoman Empire at the end of uh, World War One means that um, everybody who used to live in the Ottoman Empire has to think about what new political formations they're going to live inside of, or, or you know what 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 comes next. If, imagine if the United States broke up tomorrow, bang, right? Then what? What? Who are you going to be? Uh, what are you going to belong to? How are you going to define yourself? Um, and in that moment of uh, breakup, uh, national identity was the way that, that uh, people went. They saw that really as the wave of the future for reasons that I've tried to describe here. And also, of course, uh, President uh, Wilson in the United States had published those 14 points about national self-determination. Uh, people were trying very hard to avoid uh, becoming colonies. Uh, very try trying very hard to avoid being you know, occupied and put into a semi-colonial status or directly colonial status. And um, so the adoption of a, 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 the, the claiming and articulation of a national identity uh, was uh, made sense, uh, both in the, in the way that people really believed in the, in the reality of that, a shared language, history, background, and also in the way that that seemed to be, a, uh, in practical terms, uh, one of the only effective options for uh, lobbying for the creation of polit new political entities that would at some level be minimally acceptable to the people living there. Um, uh, so I think that, um, you know, uh, subsequently um, the Arab lands of the uh, Ottoman Empire were, were divided into a series of um, political units um, that um, served the purposes primarily of, of the occupying powers. And uh, a lot of good many people in the Arab world continue, felt and, and continue to feel, some of them, that um, those are, um, that those divisions thwart uh, the destiny of the Arab people as, as a people who share a common language to be joined together in one nation. Uh, it's not so different from Italians in the 1860s, uh, you know, being pretty much up in arms that Venice was part of the Austrian Empire and not part of Italy. Uh, they want that unification of, uh, of their co-linguistic uh, group. Uh, does that sort of... 
continuing with the two main points you made at the end, um, you said that thinkers like Yusuf Abtura thought that um, <coughs> Islamic unity is a dream and we need to have national identity. But you also mentioned that um, they saw the Ottoman side of multi-ethnic empires kind of dead. So I was wondering, like, if they were um, Turkis, were they kind of resigned to the idea of losing these territories that um, where Christians lived, or did that have to do with them being immigrants and not really from, not being from those towns in the first place, and they didn't really. And I was just. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, so I don't want to overstate that. Let me try to nuance that a little bit, uh, what I said. Um, so you come from Russia, uh, from the Russian Empire, uh, fleeing czarist repression uh, in 1909, let's say, and you land in uh, Istanbul. And you definitely want the Ottoman Empire to survive, right? So you, you definitely, you know, and, and you're not sort of sitting there in Istanbul saying, oh, you know, great, Salonika has fallen to the, to, the, to the Greeks or the Bulgarians. Isn't that great news? You know, I mean, that, that's not anything that anybody wants to happen. They have a real uh, uh, desire to preserve the, the Ottoman Empire as much as possible. Um, but I think, so, but, but what I'm trying to talk about is, if you will, the ability to think outside certain boxes. And it's one thing um, again, if I can make a sort of gross analogy just for the, you know, a crass analogy for just for the sake of, of clarity here, you know, if you grow up in this country, it might be kind of hard for, that is in the United States, right, it might be kind of hard for you to imagine different sort of possible geopolitical configurations. Like, I, I don't think it's, you know, that you would necessarily sit around too often and think like, gee, you could cut off this part and it could be part of Canada and you could, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, that just, just sort of conjuring that up in your mind um, isn't something that you're doing a lot of because you have you've been born and raised in a particular uh, uh, set of realities. You think that uh, Russian immigrants could think about it differently. It doesn't mean necessarily that you desire it, right? In other words, it's not that they're saying, oh, gee, let's hope that the Ottoman Empire breaks up and we can dump these uh, uh, non uh, uh, these people who are not, you know, yeah, ethnic Turks, but, but what was their then, idea, you know, projection for the future, the future of the Ottoman Empire? If they want the uh, Turkish state, you know, an Ottoman Empire with a more Turkish identity, and then these various minority groups are still in the country, I was just, um, I mean, was there any designs for such a? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, Two things about that. One is that in 1914, say, when this is being written, there are no Turkish states anywhere in the world, right? There's um, an Ottoman state that has an ethnic Turkish dynasty at its head, but that has a very mixed uh, uh, ethnic, religious, whatever, population, and elite also. It's not just that the population is mixed. The elite classes are quite mixed. Um, and then you have um, uh, Iran, which is basically in a semi-colonial state. 
and that's and, and, and there are Turkish uh, populations there, but it's not uh, certainly a, a um, Turkish uh, land. You know, uh, the state is not Turkish identified. Um, and then you have all these Turkic peoples in, in uh, the Caucasus and Central Asia who've essentially been occupied by the Russians. So the whole idea of Turkish nationalism as a political agenda, that is, as, an, as a state formation agenda, is utterly theoretical. It, it's something that people are just sort of, you know, um, uh, imagining in a... In a, in a um, It's coffee. It's something we talk about in a coffee house. Um, uh, cultural awakening. I mean, a cultural nationalism and the awakening of a national consciousness among Turks. Where you know uh, that is. Uh, I think these people in, in this particular historical moment are more interested in promoting the awakening of a, a Turkish consciousness among Turks in the Ottoman Empire and among Turks outside of the Ottoman Empire. I don't think any, although it's later claimed that this was the case, I don't think it was in any real sense true that uh, Turk Jews were, were genuinely interested in 1910, let's say, in the creation of a greater uh, Turkish state that was going to extend from, you know, Salonika to Karakorum or something. Um, I, I, uh, I think that uh, they were much more interested in a cultural project of, of national awakening um, uh, and in getting people interested in thinking about Turkish language, Turkish history, uh, Turkish uh, culture, and so on and so forth. I think what, you know, what they were also um, saying was that the Ottoman Empire needed to move uh, more towards a um, popular sovereignty kind of liberal, however you want to frame that, uh, a kind of political system. That doesn't necessarily, and by popular sovereignty, I'm not saying get rid of the uh, sultanate. I'm saying that um, uh, you had a, a system like that that had been instantiated in European countries where, where the monarchies had survived, but where representative institutions and the ultimate decision-making power of the voting public had been uh, uh, brought forward. Um, so, so I think that they felt that that was something that was desirable, and I think that was a view that was shared by leading Ottoman intellectuals broadly. Um, and in, in that context, though, they were saying, you know, um, those things work, but they work on the basis of um, shared values of some kind. Um, and um, ultimately, in, let's say, a place like the United Kingdom, right, that the, the people like the Welsh or the Scots are forced to accommodate their, their um, mentalities to some extent to the uh, larger British project. And, you know, in Ireland it didn't work. Um, and so I think they're interested in that kind of a thing. Uh, uh, and I think you see that with um, people saying, um, we're not going to tell people to forget who they are. We're not going to tell people to say, you know, to forget that they're Greeks and become Turks, for example, or to forget that they're Arabs and become 
Turks. But we are going to say that, that we're, you know, we're working to create a sort of baseline of uh, common cultural uh, uh, or institutional features that everybody who participates in this political system is going to have to share in. Uh, a more unified educational system, uh, a use of um, um, Ottoman, a simplified Ottoman Turkish uh, in, in official contexts, all official contexts, right, regardless of whether you're in an Arab-speaking land or uh, a Greek-speaking land. Um, and um, you know, and you hope that that's going to hold, that that's going to work, and that that's going to hold together. But if it doesn't, then you have. But then, the, then the, the 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 Turkish nation is conscious from their point of view. It has awakened. It is conscious. It is uh, it, it positioned um, uh, to to. Uh, stake something out for itself. Uh, and so the argument, I think, is not so much you know, that the Ottoman Empire uh, can't be maintained or shouldn't be maintained, um, or that the other people who live in the empire can't, be, you know, can't continue to be there, but, it's a fi- but, it's a, but it is a kind of assessment of the situation in a sense that um, uh, everybody else has um, developed a certain sense of their national background and, their, and, their, and the claims that um, may or may not uh, derive from that uh, awareness or that consciousness, and that uh, Turks uh, need to position themselves similarly. It is after 1908, for example. It is after 1908. Okay. Then, you please talk about that. Like, what do you mean by certain mysticism? What is the correlation or the relation? Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me, so let me, uh, uh, th- thank you very much for that question because it's an interesting question. I, um, I, I can't, I don't claim to be a great authority on, on uh, Ahmed Hilmi. So let me let me say again, this is uh, you know something that I've uh, uh, his work is something that I've only become recently somewhat familiar with, and uh, I uh, haven't done a, pr- a great deal of research on him. So I wouldn't care to you know pretend to speak authoritatively about him. Um, but I think one of the things that I have read about him 
is that he was um, of that you know he was sent into exile in North Africa, and that while he was there, he had a kind of religious experience and uh, became uh, attached to a Sufi tariqat. And then uh, uh, returned. You know, then he was able to come back to uh, Istanbul, where he became involved in uh, actively involved in the publishing scene of the period. But the uh, particular uh, Sufi uh, uh, group that he connected himself to, and um, it escapes me right now the name, was not one that had any representation in Istanbul at all. Um, so he in a sense was able to elaborate his thinking, his religious thinking, uh, in the absence of um, a uh, a presence of, that, of the religious community that he felt attached to. Uh, there's nobody there to sort of uh, say uh, uh, whether or not his thought process is uh, <laughs> developing in ways that are sort of consonant with what other people in his particular uh, order think. And um, that, so that's one thing. Um, secondly, and again, this is somebody else's point, uh, he didn't try to organize uh, a um, a branch of his uh, order in Istanbul. He didn't have any interest in creating um, a, you know, in, in, in bringing other people on board to his particular uh, Sufi order and creating a, an extension of that order uh, in Istanbul. So I think it's fair to say uh, in that sense that he has a, a kind of intense religious experience while he's in North Africa and that that religious experience shapes his thinking a good deal or influences his thinking a good deal, but also that when he comes back to Istanbul, he's, he's not you know, he's interested in, in thinking about religion and the reform of religion and the uh, position of religion in an Ottoman reform and progressive movement. Uh, and, but he's thinking, interested in thinking about that on his own terms. Uh, he's not necessarily interested in, in tying that to uh, a particular organized uh, uh, body of thought or a particular organization, uh, per se. Um, and in a way, I think that's typical. I, I think that there were, you know, one of the things that, that one, um, you see this in Jadid writing too, right? There's this insistence on um, the exercise of individual uh, conscience and the exercise of individual uh, judgment in relationship to scripture and in relationship to the teaching of, of religion that, that um, one is not going to be uh, bound by, either by tradition or by um, some group of people that have set themselves up as authorities, uh, telling you this is, you know, this is what's acceptable and this is what's not acceptable. He has a big blowout fight, uh, uh, Hilmi does, with the um, ulama in Istanbul and with the Sheikh al-Islam because he, um, Decides and publishes in his uh, journal that um, for um, Korban, Korban Bayram, instead of uh, you know uh, uh, cutting an animal, that that what people should do is donate the money to the uh, naval relief fund. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in other words, donate money to charity. 
and, and put their resources to work in that way instead of actually uh, slaughtering animals, and that that would be, you know, more socially valuable and, in a sense, more in tune with the underlying uh, principles uh, or the underlying mess, the underlying thing that that is being asked of you in religion, um, you know, which is to to take care of people. And um, uh, the, the religious establishment in Istanbul reacts to this very, very negatively. You know, who is he to, to make a call like this, to make a religious call like this, and to call on other people to do this, and what right does he have? And, the, um, uh, and finally, he's under sufficient pressure that he actually um, and, uh, sort of sends a query to the Shaykh Islam to get a, you know, to get a reading on it, to get a judgment. What is what I did illicit or not illicit? And the judgment comes back, uh, no, it wasn't. You, you did not have the authority to do this, and not only did you not have the authority to call on other people to do this, but it's the wrong thing to do. Uh, people should not give their money to charity. They should slaughter animals, you know, in the traditional way. And, uh, uh, and his reaction to that is to say, I reject your authority. You know, I don't care if you're a sheikh of Islam, and I don't care if you issued a sefra. Um, you know, I'm a believer, uh, and I know, uh, you know, I'm able to exercise my independent judgment uh, and to understand, you know, what the right thing to do is. Um, and I, I think that that is um, um, at the heart of uh, a lot of the... the, the um, sort of modernist school in, re in religious thinking at, at that time anyway is this uh, sense that you, you, um, you don't have to rely on anybody else's authority to, to make a series of uh, uh, judgments about how the commandments of religion fit into um, what you're going to do in society and in everyday life. Um, and, and It's so, so yes, so it's a rebellion against authority. But what I want to say about it is that, I mean, to go back to your question about Pastor Wolf, what I want to say is that, that you have what look like two immovable objects, right? A set of revelations that are, by definition, true. Uh, and if you're a believing person, you really can't question that. And on the other hand, you have a set of practical realities uh, uh, and uh, sort of empirical realities, material realities that, that you're encountering every day. Um, and the question is, um, you know, if you feel committed to both of those things, uh, how, are, how are you going to um, uh, make them work together? Um, and the... the uh, but that kind of understanding of, of creation, that, you know, that says that, that, uh, the, that um, there can't really be a division between what exists and God, because nothing can exist without God, uh, and God is in everything. That mental position uh, can can, it doesn't have to, but it can serve as a way to uh, free people up from the perceived tension between those two poles. And, uh, but if what tradition mandates or what religious leaders are saying 
seems to be maintaining the tension between those two poles, and if you want to maintain your attachment to both of those two poles, then that then you then you have to be positioned to reject what it is that those leaders have to say, right? Or what those traditions have to say. Uh, and I and I think that um, this seems to have been a fair. I mean, I have not made a systematic study of this, but it's very striking to me that this is a claim that uh, appears in Hilmi's writings, and that it's also a claim that appears in Nami Kamal's writings, for example. Uh, it seems to be a fairly uh, uh, common uh, piece of um, uh, belief that, that people have reference to who are engaged in this kind of a project. I think in the interest of time, uh, maybe we ought to uh, sort of wind up the big proceeding here, and we can take a short break, and uh, those who need to uh, head on down the street or whatever can, can do that. Those who want to linger and talk first can. And my seminar will regroup with Holly when the plants thin out a little bit. And thank you very much for, for coming today. I want to thank Holly Schistler for a very fine presentation and the audience for uh, very stimulating questions which have opened up uh, other avenues. And uh, let's all show our appreciation once again to our guests. Thank you so much. Thank you.